Well, good morning, everyone. As, as Ben was saying, welcome back from Thanksgiving. It, uh, I don't know about you, but when I'm on vacation, I don't know what day it is. <laughs> Do you ever wake up in the morning and you're like, where am I? What's my name? Um, so, you know, I think that's the turkey coma, you know, just kind of the turkey hangover. But uh, that was me a few days. So it was, it was good to have a deadline and start preparing for Sunday um, and really just begin preparing for Advent. So as, as Josh mentioned, we're starting a new series um, with the focus on Advent. And something always strikes me about the word Advent, having been a Catholic school kid, um, I can look at that word and I can see that there are two, uh, two parts to it, Advent. Um, so to, it means to come, literally in, in Latin, um, but the more common connotation means arrival. And I think in my experience, I don't know that I always think of Advent as arrival. I tend to feel like um, my Advent experience is about waiting. And there's a sense of expectation and hope, you know, as, as you decorate your home and you see all the, the stores and the city lit up and you start thinking about, uh, you know, hopefully having good, good feelings about being together with family um, and thinking about Jesus's arrival at Christmas. And yet most of the month is waiting, right? If you ever do those little calendars with the boxes where there's like a little message or a toy inside, if you have children um, or, or uh, raised kids or were a child at some point, you've probably done those. And it's a countdown, right? The entire month is a countdown. There's anticipation, um, but there's waiting. And so all these Advent activities are leading up to Christmas, but it is a season of waiting. And most of us can probably relate to that feeling because that is how it is for us most of the time. We are always in between one thing and another. We're always waiting on something. So we, we often experience this, and I don't know if this has been true for you, but something that you're praying for, you're hoping for, you're desiring over a long period of time, it finally arrives. You're praying that you, know, you will be able to make a big uh, move in your career, or you'll get hired for this job that you really want, or you'll get into this um, educational program, or you'll find a spouse, um, or you'll find a, you know, a, a good friend that can like, just have your back. You're, you're praying for a child. They're praying for something that is a big deal. And then you get it, and you're like, oh, now I'm in a whole new in-between, right? I remember when we got married, um, people who were asking right away when we were going to have kids, and we were like, can you just give me a minute? Um, because as soon as I, had, you know, I prayed for a long time, found my husband that was really exciting, and now here I have a husband, and now I'm in-between, it feels like people are kind of like, well, you have to now move on. You have to have children. And then when you have one, well, you don't get, nobody's happy with that. You got you to gotta have another one. Um, and, you know, well, you're, you get this new job and now you got to think about the next position, right? Um, you get through this next, uh, your, your doctoral program and now what are you going to do at the end of that? Are you going to continue in, in research? Are you going to teach? Are you going to get a job? What are you going to do next? We're always thinking about the next thing and therefore we're always kind of stuck in this, the middle in this not yet. And even the feeling of Jesus' arrival you can imagine he finally comes to earth as a baby and we might get that same feeling of the not yet. Here comes the savior, you know, to save the day, right? But he's not riding in a horse, he's a baby. And we have to teach him how to feed himself. That is not what I expected, right? I thought it was gonna be a savior, he was gonna charge in and he was going to, you know, bring his military might and take over and instead we're changing his diapers, 
So all this living in between can cause our hope and faith to flounder and struggle. But the in-between is our life. That's our life. That's all we have. And even as we achieve one goal or begin a new long-awaited adventure, we're already immediately thrust into that new in-between. And our job is to keep our hearts alive and connected to God, ourselves and others in the midst of whatever we face. So we are approaching Advent this year from five key themes. We're starting today with hope. We'll proceed to peace, then faith, love, and light. And today we're talking about hope because everything is built on that. Hebrews 11.1 tells us that faith is the substance, the tangibility of what we hope for. And so without hope, we can't even have faith. And we know also from Hebrews that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so you can see that hope is essential. It is the foundation. It's what everything is built on. And yet today in our world, we find a totally different story. The U.S. Census Bureau reports that this year, one in three Americans are regularly feeling a sense of hopelessness or despair. One in three. And that's an improvement from last year. Around this time last year, the Census Bureau gathered that during the pandemic, with the heightened visibility around the struggle for civil rights, the prolonged separation from family and friends, disruption to employment, financial impacts, 48% of Americans were experiencing a sense of depression and hopelessness. That's one in two. That's half of us. This overwhelming sense of despair seems to be embedded into our human experience. Because you would think in our modern age with our conveniences and our technologies that we would have figured out how to be happy and hopeful and yet that hasn't been the case. And this is precisely the environment that Jesus is drawn into. About 2,000 years ago, the Hebrew people were in their own state of prolonged and epic hopelessness. Their nation, their land, and their capital had been constantly under siege for hundreds of years. In the approximately 450 years following the Old Testament prophet, the final spoken word of God in Malachi, the kingdom changed hands six times in 450 years. That's less than once every hundred years if you're doing the math. That's an enormous amount of disruption. Israel itself had, decided, had divided into three theopolitical parties. You might recognize these names. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, and they were a much smaller group. But all of this instability, you can imagine, would be exhausting. And we can kind of feel that because the last year and a half has been that for us, hasn't it? It's been enormous instability. It's been enormous. What is coming next, right? So, so the, the Hebrew people, you can imagine that with your kingdom changing hands, the government constantly turning over, that you feel like you have to watch your back. You feel like your glory days are behind you. And this constant string of losses leaves them with this devastating hopelessness. But it wasn't just the Jewish people who were feeling the sense of hopelessness at the time. This hopelessness was global. Like many, many nations had been defeated over and over by the rises and falls of the reigning kingdoms of the time. You will recognize these names, Babylon. Persia, Greece, Syria, Rome. Over and over and over again, they would, these new kingdoms would come through and sweep and take over what, whoever, whoever was the reigning kingdom at the time, 
it would now be theirs. They would take it over. And so for all of these little nations that were kind of trying to fight for their autonomy, they were constantly losing it, constantly losing it. There was a brief period um, in 163 BC to, or 164 BC to 64 BC, where the Maccabees, if you remember this, the Maccabean revolt, they took over Israel again, and Israel was self-governed for 99 years. And then Rome came through and took over. And so they had that short little period of, you know, this like very um, important time that they look back on with a lot of reverence because they had their own government, but for most of that time, they did not. Pastor Ray Stedman uh, writes, in the 400 years between the Old and New Testaments, meanwhile, the pagan empires around had been deteriorating and disintegrating. Their religions had fallen upon evil days. The people were sick of the polytheism and the emptiness of their pagan faiths. The Jews had gone through times of pressure and had failed in their efforts to reestablish themselves and had given up all hope. There was a growing air of expectancy that the only hope they had left was the coming at last of the promised Messiah. So this feeling of hopelessness was universal during this day. It wasn't just, it was not just the Hebrew people. But the Hebrew people were unique in that they were used to hearing from God. Even when they weren't always obeying God, they were hearing from God. And all of a sudden, God is silent. He's, this is known as the 400 years of silence. All this war and death and loss, loss and instability, and God is not saying anything? What gifts? Maybe you can relate to this prayer. God, what is taking you so long? Why don't you intervene in my situation? Why don't you heal my marriage? Why don't you heal my relationship with my child? Why don't you bring a child or a spouse into my life? Where are you, God? Why are you hiding and what is taking you so long? It turns out, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Is one of the most common prayers in the Bible. Waiting on God, who seems to be invisible and who seems like he's not intervening in our lives, this is part of our human experience. But finally into this 400 years of hopelessness comes a breath of relief. Gabriel appears to Zechariah. Now, in your Bible, if you open up your Bible and you go to Malachi and you read to chapter four and you leave off at Malachi four, verse six, and then you turn the page, do you know what that page turn, how long that page turn took? 400 years. Okay, it took you two seconds, so you don't even thinking about this. But we're, we're gonna go to, to Luke, okay? So you're gonna have to, you know, it's Matthew, Mark, we're in Luke today. But, because that's the story of Zechariah. This is the next thing God says, okay? So Gabriel appears to Zechariah. He's completing the annual sacrifice. He draws the short straw. If you are the priest who has to go into the Holy of Holies, you have to do all of this work to prepare yourself and it might not go well for you. And that's a whole other history lesson we won't get into today. But this is a big deal that he was selected. And so into, behind the curtain where only God lives, goes Zechariah. And Gabriel shows up. And God has been silent. Here comes an angel. This is a huge deal. And he says to, to Zechariah that he's going to finally have a son. But let's pause one minute because I think it's important that we remember what's the last thing God said, right? Because we're thinking, okay, God is going to say something. What's the last thing he said? 
Here it is, fourth chapter of Malachi. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So that's the last thing anyone has heard from God. It's hopeful, but it's like, is that a threat, right? And that's it. He doesn't say anything for 400 years. So let's listen in to what does Gabriel say to Zechariah. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will go on before the Lord, listen to this, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Can you hear that? He's picking up where he left off. The last thing he says, he's saying it again. He's like, remember that thing I was talking about, the messenger that will go before me to prepare the way of the Lord? Remember that guy? Well, that's your son. The prayer you have stopped praying, that's coming to, ha- that's coming to be happening for you. Feel free to be impressed, okay? Because Zechariah was not, all right? He doesn't even notice the Malachi reference, which, I mean, he's a priest, so I'm sure he knew Okay, because it's like they read through all the prophets, they, they know these words, and yet it completely is lost on him, because this is what he says to the angel. How can I be sure of this? He's side-eyeing Gabriel, which I didn't even know you could do that, because I mean, blinding light, right? But he's giving Gabriel the side-eye. He says, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. What happened to Zechariah? That after 400 years, he's the first person that God is speaking to, and he's telling him that Gabriel is saying, hey, this is your son, we're fulfilling a promise to you, but also to your people. And he's stuck on the impossibility of the situation, what happened. He had been waiting for so long that he lost hope. He had slipped into a self-protective mode that the Bible calls unbelief. And it blocks God from acting in our lives. I don't know if you knew that, but here's how we know. Jesus goes to Nazareth, and as you, as you, as you read through that, and I don't have the exact uh, reference here, but it says that Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. He could not do many miracles? Isn't he God? Don't you think that's interesting, how God is interacting with our faith like that? So Gabriel responds to him. The the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. So, you know, in response to Zechariah saying, how can I be sure I am old? Okay, Gabriel's like, I stand in the presence of God. I don't really know what else you need. I've been sent to speak to you, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until this day happens because, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Gabriel says, because you didn't believe, you don't get to talk or you might ruin it, okay? Because if God is relying on our faith to do miracles, here's Jesus, right? 
He could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So he's like, shh, stop talking, okay? You don't get to talk because of your unbelief. Maybe God didn't want Zechariah to ruin it, right? So he, he shuts his mouth. It goes to show that God sees how fragile hope and faith is in our human heart. And, and our words can protect hope and faith or they can harm hope and faith in our lives. So fast forward six months, Gabriel visits Mary, a teenage girl from Nazareth. She's engaged to a man named Joseph, and she's just minding her own business. And the angel shows up to her. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. I love her response. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and what, wondered what kind of greeting this might be, as one would be, right? Like, greetings who are highly favored. You think, like, you would receive that well? But it is an angel, so like a little bit intimidating, right? What is it that you want with me? The angel said, do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So here she is, just, I don't know, out in the garden or doing something around the house or studying. I don't know what she was doing. But now she's being told that she's going to have a baby. And not only is it just like any baby, but this is the baby who will sit on the throne of David forever and his kingdom will never end. But interestingly enough, she's not really focused on the son of God part as much as she's focused on the impossible baby, just like Zechariah right? They're both like, but an impossible baby. Like they don't hear the whole prophecy. They're like, but a baby, that's not possible. She asks a very valid question. How will this be since I am a virgin? Good question. Fair, fair. But notice that Gabriel responds differently to her because her question has a different spirit. It sounds similar, doesn't it, to what Zechariah says. How can I be sure of this, right? He's got the the unbelief, the side eye. But she says, how will this be? How is this possible? And so she responds with hope and faith. And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. Mary responds by saying, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. So because of her hope and faith, as she received this promise of God spoken into this 400-year void, Mary retained her options. She now had, she could talk. She could still speak, right? Unlike Zechariah. He lost his options because he had let himself sink into despair and cynicism and hopelessness while he was waiting. And so when the miracle showed up, he wasn't ready. And so he couldn't talk about it. But Mary was given the choice of how to steward her hope and faith from then on. It's very easy to turn out like Zechariah. It's very easy in our common day and age to become cynical. Cynicism is sexier than hopelessness or than hopefulness, sorry. Cynicism is sexier than hopefulness. And it's less risky, right? 
You're not putting yourself out there as much. We have all these TV shows where the main character is a very cynical person. And I got to admit, I sort of appreciate that vibe. You know, it's kind of like a Gen X, sort of like Daria. If you guys hear me talk about Daria a lot, she always has her eyes half closed. She's always like, and there's something about it that's sort of like charming to me. Um, But it's hope and faith that attract God. It's not our cynicism. So how do we hold our hearts together with hope when we experience elongated waiting or disappointment? I want to share a story about a time in my life where I also sank into this state of cynicism and unbelief. This is my own my own mothering story. And I do want to say, uh, <laughs> I would like to put an asterisk on this and say, results may vary, okay? Because this was, I know that this isn't exactly how it will go for everyone, but this is an interesting way that God intervened in my life. So about 12 and a half years ago, Josh and I had been married for a little bit, and we decided that we wanted to have a family. And I come from, my dad is the oldest of eight, Um, My mom had four kids in five years. I just thought that like if I blinked that I would have a baby. Like I was like worried that I would get pregnant too fast. So here I am starting this process like, oh yeah, we're gonna have a baby. Like as soon as I want one, they're just there like like a catalog, okay? Turned out, no, not like that for me. And I am not a patient person. If you've been through this process or one that requires you to kind of like wait and wait and wait, it will wear you down. And infertility is definitely like that. It makes every month, every month is like not one month, it's 30 days and you feel it. And then one year is like 365 very long days. And there's this disappointment every month. And so when you're in a situation like this, you realize that like no matter how much you pray or how much you like, you know, work out or manage your nutrition or if you're trying to have a baby or maybe you're, you stop drinking wine, you stop drinking coffee, you're doing all the things right. And this could be for anything in your life that you can't control. It can be a job you're wanting to find a spouse. You're trying to change all the stuff, right? You're doing all the acrobatics. It turns out that in the end, you can't control the outcome. You just can't. And for anything like that, where you're trying so hard and you really want something, you're hoping for it, and you can't make it happen, that's a really painful experience. So I got cynical about nine months in. I know you guys are like, wow, that's really lame and really fast. Could you just like hold out? But I do not, I don't don't like to be played the fool, right? I want to like, my personality type is like, We're going to guard up. I'm not going to just keep the hope, the squishy part of me out here. Like, I need to, you know, protect myself. So I got cynical. And this is where God intervened. In the beginning of 2010, I got a phone call from my best friend, Jazzy. And she got straight to it. She goes, God talked to me about you. He said, you need to repent of your unbelief about having a baby. And I was like, well, that is direct. I had come to expect that kind of thing from her. But you might be thinking, what is this business about God talking to you? You know, like, do you actually believe that? And the thing is, I do. First off, because this is my best friend who I'd known since I was 12. And the only thing she was ever wrong about were my fashion choices. And to be fair, 
I think that like the purple plaid romper with the like lace-up boots when in seventh grade was probably not the best choice. She gave me a hard time for that. And, you know, I have to agree <clears throat> 27 years later. But, you know, she was, she was right about a lot of things. I already knew to listen to her. But second, God speaks to us through his word, his spirit, and his people. And so what she said really hit home for me. And I recognized my own hopelessness that had been converted into unbelief. It was like the sadness and the grief and the disappointment, the soft, squishy part of me, I had like put it underneath something hard, that wall of unbelief. And so I got off the phone and I sat in my chair in the living room and I prayed. I just prayed. I'm like, okay, I'll just, I don't know. I, I don't know what to do, but I'm just going to say like, she said, you know, repent. I'm like, okay, <laughs> like an Old Testament prophet, right? I was like, God, I repent of unbelief. I turn away from it because that's what repent means. You're going this way, turn around. I turn away from unbelief and I receive faith. And I'm telling you, instantly, I heard this voice in my heart, the God voice. And I do not hear it all the time. But, we, but I heard it and it said very clearly this incredible sentence. You will have a child and you will name him John. What? I still got goosebumps. And I'm like, okay, um, God, I literally just got done praying about unbelief. So like, could you just give me like something like a little bit smaller scale to work with that I could like, give me like, you know, a small step of faith to take. Like you just, I just repented of unbelief. I'm trying to exercise my faith. And you're like, here's this huge thing. And I was like, oh. And I, then I kept thinking, well, was that even God? How do I know, right? Because sometimes we, we hear that still small voice and sometimes it's not always God, right? It's scary, like, ah, and here I am thinking, what do I do with this? What, what, how do I, what do I do? And I remember thinking, well, I just told God that I received faith, so I need to use it. So I'm going to believe that that was, could be probably God. And so I held this thing very tightly, and I told one person, my husband. I felt like it affected him. And, and then I didn't tell anybody else because I was like, okay, I need to keep this thing safe. I don't want to just put this word out there for people to shoot it down. Right? So I realized that I had to protect this thing, right, by not, not talking about it. And two months later, I had a positive pregnancy test. And to be honest, I was shocked. I wasn't like, oh yes, there is God coming through. Yes, indeed, as he said, as he spoke. I was like, what, what? I heard God, oh my gosh. And then I was like, oh, it's a boy. His name is John, God already told me. But then, you know, we didn't, we didn't tell anybody because again, this felt really sacred. So we told people that we were having a baby and we also said, we're having a boy. And they're like, how could you possibly know that? And we're like, we just do, okay? And when he was born, we announced that his name was John. And again, I understand that results may vary. So, you know, please bear with me on this. But this was how God brought me out of my state of unbelief. And it showed me what I might have been blocking God from. Something really powerful, so when we receive a promise from God, whether it's something you read in the Bible that's resonating with you or someone speaks directly to you, to a circumstance in your life, this 
is the thing about that, that like Mary in this mysterious announcement, this promise that we receive thrusts us into an in-between. Because as soon as God says this to me, as soon as God visits, Gabriel visits Zechariah, Gabriel visits Mary, he doesn't say when it's going to happen. So now they have this word, they have this promise, they have this hope, and they have to steward that. They have to hold on to that. How are they going to do that? They have to sit on the knowledge and wait for it to happen. So you can imagine Mary was thinking, who am I going to tell? Who's going to believe me? Maybe on a bad day she was thinking to herself, maybe I was dreaming. Maybe I didn't even see that, right? Can you, you can imagine that. Who am I to be the mother of God? What kind of grandiosity complex do I need to have to think that maybe I could be the mother of God? So battling hope and faith must have been a struggle for her. So what she does next in her life, as you read through in Luke 1, I think is a pathway for us as we think about how to steward hope in our lives. So maybe you need hope for your future, just to believe that things are going to turn out okay. Maybe you need hope that something you're longing for, like a spouse or a child or a career opportunity, is finally going to happen. Maybe you need hope that the work you're doing in the world, the work you're doing for good, is actually making a difference. Maybe you need hope for a restored relationship with a friend or a spouse or a child. Maybe you need hope that God's real and that he hears you and that he loves you. No matter where we are in life, we are in between one thing and another. We always need hope in these seasons. So two things that Mary does allow her to preserve her hope, and I want us to pay attention to this. First, as soon as she gets off the phone with Gabriel, she heads straight to her cousin Elizabeth. The first chapter of Luke tells us that right after Gabriel visits Mary, she immediately hurried off and headed for her cousin Elizabeth's house. It's literally like the next verse. Gabriel told her Elizabeth's pregnant and she has to see this for herself. She knows Elizabeth will be a safe person to share her story with. She's not talking to anyone. She's just holding this thing until a safe person shows up. Some of the time when we're praying and hoping for something, we tell the wrong people. And I don't mean people who are like bad. I mean people who care about us, people who love us. They just don't want us to get hurt, right? They don't want us to get our hopes up. Have you ever heard someone that you love say that to you? I just don't want you to get your hopes up, sweetie. Ooh, yikes. Right? If I don't have hope, how can I have faith? Everything is dependent upon my hope. They don't want to see us get hurt. And you know what? To be fair, sometimes, you know, if I had like a big dream of playing in the WNBA, I think that somebody could possibly come into my life and say, hey, sweetheart, perhaps we should pick a different career. I'm not that athletic. I don't really like long, strenuous workouts. I'm under 5'8", right? So it's not like the odds aren't great for me. Okay, But for the most part, when we're sharing something with someone, we want people to validate or protect this thing that we're hoping for. And a lot of times we don't tell the right people because we tell people we love, but they're not hopeful people. We have to tell hopeful people. Sometimes the people we love or the people in our lives will accuse us of grandiosity. We're doing a good job of that by ourselves, aren't we? You can imagine that Mary was thinking, who am I to be the mother of God? Does she need someone else saying that to her? I don't think so. Joseph's brothers did that too, right? Who are you 
to be the king, to be the, you know, the ruler, right? So he told them that dream, that was a bad move. That didn't go well for him. Perhaps Mary was thinking of Joseph's brothers when she kept this to herself. Either way, we have to guard these dreams. We have to share them with the right people who will cheer us on. Hopeful people who are believing for their own miracles. When we hold on to hope, when we need to hold on to hope, and we always do, it's important to surround ourselves with those people. Because when you have an off day, when you're having trouble telling yourself the truth, you need those people to come around you and hold you up. The second thing that Mary does right in response to this impossible situation is she reminds herself about who she is, who God is, and what God has done for her and for others. Through her song in Luke 1, she's telling herself the truth about God so she can ground herself when doubt comes her way. It's possible that Mary's song, known to us as the Magnificat, were some of the first words she spoke aloud between her visit from Gabriel to seeing Elizabeth for the first time. She might have just been like, quiet. And as soon as Elizabeth greets her, she's like, oh my goodness, I'm so fortunate. I'm so blessed to have you come. The mother of my Lord is visiting me. And she doesn't even say hi. She just pours out the song. And as, as we're reading through this, I want you to listen for where she is speaking about herself, God, and others. So let's read this. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She's talking about herself. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. So this is the character of God extended to others. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary is a shining example that one of the most important things we can do when hope is at stake is to remind ourselves of what God has already done in our lives and in the world. Philippians 4 tells us that part of calming our anxiety, holding on to hope and joy, and keeping our peace, starts with reminding ourselves what God has done. So Philippians 4, 4, starting verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice, because it's a choice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, remembering what God has done and telling him about it, present your request to God. And when you do that, the peace of God that transcends, that goes beyond understanding, becomes a guard to your heart and mind. So when you are anxious about something, don't just pray about it, pray about it with thanksgiving, and that process allows peace to become a guard to your heart and mind. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about or meditate on such things. It doesn't mean you don't read the news. It doesn't mean you like put your head in sand. You don't know what's going on. It means that when you choose what you're going to ruminate over, you're choosing what is good and lovely and praiseworthy. 
Mary, no doubt, had reason to be anxious, to become cynical, to move into unbelief, and all of us do. But she kept her hope alive by sharing her story and the promises she was holding on to with people who would encourage her and by reminding herself who she is, who God is, and what he's done in the world. And this is the path for all of us in these uncertain times. Between the first arrival of Jesus and his return. We are celebrating Advent together, remembering that Jesus came the first time, born of a virgin as he said he would. And when we celebrate Advent, we remind ourselves, as Mary did, of all that God has done for us. That Jesus removed the barrier to God and removed our sin from us. But here we are, as we always are, in the in-between, waiting for Jesus to bring his kingdom to earth. And that's the ultimate hope of Advent, the hope of Christmas. And when we remind ourselves of all God has done for us, his redemption of humanity, the grand scale, and all the tiny ways that he intervenes in our lives, then we can remember to trust him and hope that he will indeed return to make all things new. So this week, I want to invite you to tune into your heart. And I want to leave you with this next step, this sort of meditation I want you to ask yourself a question. Notice where you need to hold on to hope in your life. Where does hope need to be restored? Where have you lost hope? It might be in a surprising place. And it would help if you would ask the Holy Spirit because maybe there's nothing that stands out to you. But I bet there is something pretty quick. Holy Spirit can help you. Because he wants us to have faith. He wants, us to, he wants to move in our lives. And I hope I've made the case today that without faith, we can't see God move in our lives. Or we see more of a trickle, right? So we need to remove unbelief. We need to restore hope. We need to nurture hope. So where in your life have you lost that hope? Where have you let doubt and cynicism creep in? Where do you kind of like... You know, when you think about it, you're like, "Uh, I don't know. I think that opportunity's over. You You know the voice. You know how you talk when you're cynical, right? You know how that sounds in your head and when you say it out loud. Go where that is and then ask the Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do about that? What do you want me to do to restore hope and faith in the area of my life? So let's pray together. Worship team, you can come back up. Lord, we thank you that you are constantly on the move in our lives, even when we can't see you. You are often working behind the scenes. And while our vision is outward and forward, there's always things that you're doing in invisible places to prepare us for for the next thing that you're doing in our lives, God. And often we get impatient and we tell you that you're, you're taking too long. And because you don't work on our timetable, we get cynical. But Lord, who are we to say how long things should take? We don't want to hold your your goodness hostage or our belief in your goodness hostage by saying, you need to work at at my speed, Lord. We surrender this to you. We surrender the things that we we love and that we want, but we don't surrender it in hopelessness. We surrender it so that you can give us back our hope. So even today, Lord, for those who are sitting here with this thing that has dried up, this hope that maybe they have even like 
not even wanted to think about God. Hope is such a dangerous and risky thing, but without it, we can't have faith. And so we need hope, Lord. Restore hope in the hearts of the people here today, Lord. Those watching online, those who are here with tall grass at the well, those who are part of our our family, extended family, Lord, we just ask that you would, in this Advent season, do a miracle in our hearts to breathe life again into these places. And, And do that by reminding us who you are, not just that like we didn't get what we wanted yet. Remind us who you are and that we can ultimately trust you no matter the outcome. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded in partnership between Tallgrass Community Church and The Well. For more resources like this, visit tallgrass.church and thewellmhk.com.